Let's pray as we stand. God, the words of that song are just so true. Spirit of God, we ask that you would lead us, that you would lead us to trust that has no borders, that as we are in this place today, listening from your word and hearing what you have said to us, we cannot be moved unless, Spirit, you move us. And we pray that that's what you do this morning. God, you are almighty and you are worthy of all praise and it is the story that you have set before us that brings us here today to see ourselves and to see our sin. And Jesus, your faithfulness on the cross is so beautiful. This morning, open up our eyes and open up our ears to hear your word. Many of us have walked into this room with so many different emotions and feelings just as the imagery of that song is portrayed, a, a true story that happened within Scripture, Jesus, as you walked with Peter on the water and as he sank, he felt hopeless. And there are many of us in this room that walk into this room feeling hopeless, feeling like there's not much that's driving us. And that is not from you, God. And we pray that you would lead us, God, to understand the truth of who you are, that you would encourage us, that you would show us your sin and also that you would give us freedom that's found in the cross. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. My name is Jordan and... I'm an associate pastor here at the church. My main responsibility, if you haven't picked it up already, is to oversee the youth ministry. And man, it has been quite the joy to work with your students as they have um, just really have come. Uh, they've, they've loved Jesus for many years, but they've really come to a, um, really embrace the relationship with, uh, with Christ. And it's been a, a very, very, very exciting and fun journey. In case you walked in late and you missed it, this is the one time a year where our youth ministry takes over the worship service. And we have an opportunity just to show you what happens within our youth ministry. And so you see, again, a bunch of students on stage. You saw the students leading in the announcements. And uh, it's, a, again, a joy of ours to be able to, to do this annually and to use this as an opportunity to celebrate the hard work of all the seniors who are graduating this year. So when, um, as we move forward, we're going to be in the book of James. So if you brought your Bibles with you, if you have your phones, whatever device that you may have, if you could turn to the book of James, and we're going to start in verse 1 here in a few minutes. This summer, as we continue to worship together, we're going to find ourselves within two series. We're going to be jumping back and forth a little bit. Last week, we, we've, uh, we had Daniel start our parable series, and today we're jumping into James. And we're actually going to spend the next three weeks talking about this book of James, working halfway through the book. Then we're going to have a few more series on the parables, a few more sermons on the parables, and then we're going to come back to James a few weeks later. And so you're going to see these parables series and this James series that are going to kind of be happening simultaneously from weekend to week out. But today we are launching inside the book of James. So you have it open. We have a lot to talk about. So let's just begin right off the top and let's look right at the very first verse in James. So James chapter 1 verse 1. We have the author. He gives his name. It's, he, the book is titled after him. It's not too hard to grasp. It says James a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Who is this James? 
in Scripture, there are three different Jameses that surface. We definitely have James, the beloved disciple of Jesus. So there was Peter, James, and John that were the closest disciples that walked with Jesus. This is not that James. And the reason we know this is not that James is that that James died before this book was written. So we know that that kind of takes him off the table. Who we think wrote this book is, um, and there's a really, really strong argument for it, is that this is James, the brother of Jesus. So um, James grew up with Jesus. Can you imagine what it's like growing up with the Son of God? You thought your sibling had special rights because they were perfect, you know? James, I'm sure, had a rough time growing up with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, you know? And so um, what we do know from, uh, from ancient literature is that James was actually a late convert to Christianity within his life. He, d- he didn't follow the... Um, idea of who his brother was until later on. Again, there's speculation on why, but I can look at it and be like, man, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's difficult for a young boy to grasp that your brother is the son of God. But something happened within his life where he understood the importance of it, and after his death, burial, and resurrection, knew who Jesus was and devoted himself fully to his half-brother, Jesus. And that's where this book comes out. Um, This is not a letter. Many of Paul's writings in the New Testament are letters to churches, so it's kind of easy to figure out who he's talking to. James is actually writing this to uh, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so it's, it's, it's to a group of people rather than a single church. And what James is trying to accomplish is very, very specific. Um, many people love reading the book of James. It's a, it's a crowd favorite, if you will, of many followers of Jesus. I'll, I'll never forget when Drath told me in college, when he went to Bible college, he memorized the whole book. And so uh, I'm going to test you later. I'm going to see, see what you know uh, about it. Um, but it, 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 that is on par with what a lot of people feel about this book of James. It's easy to grasp. It's easy to read. It's fun to kind of start digging in and unpacking. It's only five chapters long, so you can read it in one, two, three, four sittings if you really wanted to. Um, The reason why I think it may be so loved is because it's a very practical read. You start reading the book of Romans, and you see Paul is a very theoretical type writer. He talks really deep, talks really heavy theology, and it's one of those type of books that you have to read the pages three or four or five times to understand what's going on there, but once you get it, oh my gosh, it changes your life. That's the kind of writer Paul was. One of my favorite books in all of the Bible is Romans because of how theologically sound it really is, and it, uh, it, that's really really good stuff. James is totally different. It's extremely practical. You're reading it. He uses a lot of metaphors. Even today, we're going to see four metaphors as we move through this. You see um, James talking about um, those who doubt being like the waves of the sea uh, tossed back and forth by the wind. Uh, Those who are rich and love their money more than anything else, they will perish like the flowers and the grass scorched by the sun. 
our evil desires lure us in. This is a fishing um, uh, analogy used that many people in that time would understand that our evil desires are luring us into temptation. People can put their minds around that and grasp that. And lastly, our desires, when they're acted upon, um, gives birth to sin. So there's this whole idea of giving birth that really helps us grasp the things that he is trying to say. Again, really practical, really easy to understand. And I think that's why a lot of us love reading this book. As we read it over and over again, the newness and the coolness of it kind of wears down as we understand what James is saying. And man, it could, the, his words that he chooses to use can and should pierce our hearts to pursue Christ so much differently than we ever have before. This book focuses on calling us as followers of Jesus to live authentically. That word authentic is a, is a catchphrase within our culture. Uh, churches all over um, our, our nation are using this word authentic. And it's a right word to use, but it's easy for us just to drive past it and not really get what it really means. And so what do we mean by when we say to live authentic for the cause of Christ? Well, simply what James is going to call us to do is, is that our lives should reflect what it is that we say we believe about the gospel, we can sit in the pews and in this room this morning and we can hear these words spoken. We can be like, absolutely, I agree with that, that we should be able to live in a way that matches what we say. Hardly any of us would disagree with that comment. But if we stop and we pause and we, we reflect, our lives sometimes are so back and forth, they do not reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live many times compartmentally. When we go to this place, this is how we be, behave and we act. When we go to this place, this is how we behave and we act. When we come to church, obviously we sing, we worship when we're in this place, and I'm very comfortable with it. But authentic living is actually saying the gospel is the core of everything that we do. So when we go out into our homes and into our world and how we lead our families and how we interact with people we work with and our kids, it is the gospel that drives us. That is what it means to live authentically. That is what James is going to push us to. I love what David has said about being authentic. We can use the word single-minded or single-souled, having one heart, one passion for something greater than ourselves. And um, I'm, I'm going to read um, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, and um, it, it paints a beautiful picture, a picture that I believe James is drawing us to. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? So we're talking about a young man. How does he live up to be um, pure, to be whole, and to understand who this God is? And it says right off the bat that we are to guard our hearts according to your word. The word of God is not just something that we do every now and then or we pick up when we need something. It is the catalyst for everything that we do. It is what keeps a young man and a young woman pure. It is what drives us in our daily living. Verse 10. 
With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Again, let the intentionality of the words that David used sink in as we reflect how we pursue Jesus every single day. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. His focus and his direction is to not sin against God. He is not satisfied with his sin nature. He wants to continue to fight it. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And in the, um, in the ways of your testimonies I delight as much as in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Again, that is what drives us day in and day out as we pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. It is a commitment. Do we understand what commitment really is? If I were to sit down with every single one of you in this room and we just start talking about our first loves, I bet we could all have a good story, right? Think back to, well, what was it, kindergarten that you had your first love? That's what it was for me. I don't know why certain names stick in our brains, but Shelly Miller was someone in kindergarten that I chased on the playground. I lived in this town only for a few years. I moved away. Like, she wasn't anyone that I knew really well, but that was the girl that I loved, you know? I loved chasing her. I loved tormenting her. I'm sure she's telling her Bible studies somewhere about this guy named Jordan that always chased her and actually scared her to death, and it's a whole different type of story. So we have these relationships, you know, we're, we're drawn to, to be attracted to people. And then we get to the place where we have our first girlfriend or our first boyfriend, right? That's when the memories really start kicking in. Do you remember asking your first girlfriend out and the nerves that you had? Oh, you know, the belly starts going crazy. Um, it's just something that uh, I'm so glad that I don't ever have to do again. Stacy, please protect yourself. Don't want to ever have to go through that time in my life ever again. She says, yes, your story, your journey begins. You're committed to one another. You asked her out, your boyfriend and your girlfriend. You are exclusive. You, no one else can get in, right? And then you move along in your relationship. And then you got to actually get past the first stage of, you know, when are we going to hold hands? And what's that like, you know? Um, Again, totally sharing from my own experiences. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget in, in junior high, I had my first girlfriend and I was sitting on the couch with her, right? And you're sitting side by side and you're inching closer to closer, closer together as you are um, watching TV or watching a movie. Um, I wasn't as smooth as the yawn, you know, with the arm around. I just had my hand on the seat beside her. And then before we knew it, our fingers were touching, you know? You're like, as soon as you touch, it's like, do you pull away immediately? or do you continue with moving closer to? And um, I chose to, she didn't pull away, so I thought that's something that she's okay with. And so, you know, the fingers start going on top of the other finger, and before you know it, you're interdigitating. You got, you know, there's this, and then there's this. This means you are serious in your relationship, right? You are committed, and when you get there, it's kind of like the angels are singing in heaven. If you're in elementary, look what you have forward, look forward to in your life. 
I'm not giving you principles to live by. I'm just saying this is my journey. The first kiss, the first this, the first that. Commitment, right? If we were to talk about these stories, your first girlfriend or your, maybe your first serious girlfriend, your first serious boyfriend, we would say that we were committed to that person, right? If other boys come around and try to take my girlfriend, I'm going to beat him up, right? In the name of Jesus, I'm coming after <laughs> this dude. I'm committed to this girl and you will not come in. Very committed until a problem comes up and all of a sudden you're not so committed anymore and your commitment breaks and you move on. If you're like me, you have the scars of the commitment breaks because of that person breaking up with you and you're still harboring pain and angst. But um, I found someone a lot better than anyone that I ever dated. You know what I mean? So like we have these girlfriends in these relationships where we're like, this has to be it. I'm 13 years old and I'm going to marry this person. And we're like, no. <clears throat> I look back, I'm like, I'm so thankful it didn't work out because I ended up so much better off but we think that we're committed. To us, that's what committed means. We can look even to the way that our culture treats even marriage. So we get to the point where we want to be united together forever. We say our vows and we promise these things in sickness and in health till death do us part. We will com be committed to one another forever until I'm just not happy anymore, until I'm just not in love anymore then all of a sudden the commitment's not quite the commitment that it was, and so we can make choices that benefit me, right? We struggle to know exactly what single-mindedness or single-souled or being committed really is. In the church, we can talk about it. I could preach about being committed, and majority of us in this room could say, right on, amen, I'm in. But when it comes to the life we live outside of these walls, it is a continual struggle and a continual battle. We are terrible as a culture of being single-minded. James speaks into this in a very strong way. And we, I hope and I pray, will be challenged. As I've been praying through this series and, and seeking the Lord's guidance on where we go within this series, uh, it is my prayer for us as a church that, that we will um, experience the book of James like a fresh spring water, that as we read it, we will feel, feel so refreshed as we understand the holiness of who God is and what he calls us to. On the other side of the corn, coin, it is also my prayer that James's words are like a dagger to our hearts that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of our double-mindedness as we move forward in our relationship with Jesus. And that is good, and that is right, and that is holy, that he does, the Holy Spirit does make us uncomfortable. So that is my prayer for us as we begin today the journey, the summer of walking through the book of James. So my main point for us as we continue together this morning is that I want to encourage us to fight for a sustainable faith. Sustainable is one of those catch words in Portland, right? 
leaving small carbon footprints. Everything needs to be sustainable. Another one of those words that may not have a lot of depth to us. But when we start thinking about the gospel and our commitment and our single-mindedness, we need to understand that what God is calling us to is to a sustainable faith. Not a commitment that we're going to bail from when things get uncomfortable, but the uncomfortability of life leads us to understand who Jesus is more, which causes us to lean in more to the person of Christ to be our strength when we are weak. We need to have a vision for continuing to follow Jesus whenever we're 40, 70, 80 years old. Just like the story Daniel shared last week, if you were with us, about the gentleman in his church over at Henson Baptist Church, who they were have a, having a funeral service for this week, who ended his life strong, pursuing Jesus. That man that he described had a sustainable faith. That is our heart's passion for Harvest Community Church, is that we as a church would have a faith that is sustainable forever and ever and ever that our faith is more than just something that we do, but is a piece of who we are, that we are alive because of the faith that we have in Christ. If you have your Bibles open to James, jump all the way down to verse 16, and let's just see what, a, um, what everything in this section we're about to read drives to. James is call to us in this first section is do not be deceived my dearly beloved brothers so let's put our guards down this morning let's not be deceived by the evil one let's not be afraid of being uncomfortable and let's dive into what james has to say to us so i got four points i want us to walk through today and the first point is that sustainable faith begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where everything must begin. As we know the story, or as we have been familiarized with the story, what we know is that this Bible that we hold in our hands, no matter if it's on an electronic device or if it's in a paper form, this story is the greatest love story that has ever existed. It started at the beginning of time, and God has been intimately involved with his creation. Yes, the creation around him, as well as the creation of males and females, he's been intimately involved with walking with humans through human history to draw us to himself this is what the story of god really is then we today in 2016 find ourselves in the midst of this greatest love story all of the Old Testament of Scripture is pointing to the cross of Christ and saying how beautiful and how worthy and how great and how necessary the cross is. That is where we must live. That's where our relationship with Jesus begins. That's where we find our, our relationships right with him. And then the Gospels portray the cross and everything in the New Testament looks back to the cross and we find ourselves in the midst of this greatest love stories. Here's where we sometimes get this story wrong is we make this story about you and about me. So we pick up this Bible and we try to find something that applies to me and we start reading and we think to ourselves, how can this benefit me? And then we put the book down and then we misuse the book that God has given us. This is his story about his glory. Yes, we find ourselves in it, but it is to glorify himself that we are inside this story. So it's a tricky thing. 
It's tricky because it is for us. We see ourselves in the midst of every page of it, but it does not end there. We can't stop reading there. We've got to be driven to see Jesus and to be living for something greater than ourselves so that God can make his name known. God cares more about your joy and my joy than we care about our own joy. James starts off and he centers on this amazing truth of you and me finding joy. Let's look at it in verse 2. It says, Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. James's cry to us is that we, in the midst of God's story, would find complete and utter joy in the things that we do. And that in this discovery of joy, that we would be driven towards being complete, to be whole, to be mature as followers of Jesus. And that's what this life is as we live these years on this earth, is to be sanctified or to be driven to understand more of who Christ is, to be living more for his glory than our own. It is there where we find ultimate joy when we live for things greater and bigger than ourselves. But it's very interesting where we find joy. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Which leads us to our second point today is that sustainable faith remains, I'm sorry, uh, remains faithful under trials. It's interesting how the book of James is so popular because James starts off with a punch. Sure, it's easy to read, but what he's calling us to is extremely difficult things, to submit and to surrender to the trials that he walks with us through because it has great purpose in our lives. What are these trials? I would say by definition, trials are not necessarily easy things that we walk through. These are difficult things that we do. We have a tendency whenever we experience trials in our lives to try to hush the noise of the trials, to just get through the trials instead of sitting in the midst of a trial and asking God what he is doing around us and asking, more importantly, who he is for us while we are walking through these really difficult things. That is what God wants for us as we pursue him. So as we move forward, James 2, and we look at verse 12, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Verse 12, blessed is a man who, re- who remains steadfast under trials. So those are two bookends of the great idea, some great imagery in between. Verse 5, if you lack any wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Wisdom is something God desires to lavish on us. 
some of the most greatest parenting times I had in my life is whenever I've been so frustrated and I sent my kids to their rooms because if they were in my presence any longer, I might have killed them. And there have been a few key points in my life where I've sat on the steps of my basement and just asked God for wisdom. I don't know what to do here. This isn't like a, uh, you know, a precious moments little prayer that I'm asking. Oh God, I need to come to you, so I'm going to come to you. No, this is me having it out with God and saying, God, I cannot do this. This child will not survive any longer if I'm in my own strength. Give me something, because I got nothing. That's how my prayers go with God. And that's the way that I say, give me wisdom, because I, I need it. I want it. Give it to me. And those are the greatest parenting moments that I have whenever I stop and I pause and I ask God for wisdom, because when we ask God with faith and trust that he wants to give it to us, and we stop and we pause and we just reflect God will show up and he will answer our prayers and he will give you wisdom. And I have taken that practice to many more things in my life to just say, God, you are all wise. Give me wisdom in walking through this. And he has been faithful time and time again. So in our wisdom or in our um, times of lack of wisdom, he desires to give and to give generously. His call to us also in verse 9 through 11 is to boast in our lowliness. The Sermon on the Mount puts it to, um, it says the blessed are the poor in spirit. So when we feel like we have nothing, that is the same place that God wants us. And if you are rich in heart and in spirit and you start leaning on your own strength, we need to rejoice in our humiliation as God puts himself back on the throne as king and he makes us feel and understand that we at best are secondary to his glory, if not less. Because those who are rich, who feel like they're powerful, who want to make a name for themselves, they will die like the grass and the flowers that get scorched by the sun. That is not the life that I choose to live. So sustainable faith remains faithful under the trials that God gives and God leads us to. Which leads us to our third point. Sustainable faith remains faithful under temptations. And this is where things get a little bit tricky to understand, but again, is so rich and so good. There is a fine line between a trial and a temptation. James gives us a glimpse into the human heart, the way that you and I think, the way that we respond, the way that we suffer, the way that we struggle, the way that we go to our sin nature. Let's read verse 13 and 14 together. Actually, I'm going to back back up to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then his desires, when it conceives, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
we see God's roles in trials, that they are ordained by God for God's good purposes of walking with us and maturing us. But again, like I said, there's a very fine line between trials and temptations. James makes it very clear that it is not God who tempts anyone. God does not have the ability to give us temptation to sin. That is not the role that he has. So question mark, what is God's role within trials and within temptations? This may seem like a really silly question, or maybe a question that you've wrestled with before. Where is God in the midst of these things? And it's so difficult for us to understand, and so we just stopped wrestling with it, and we just left it be. And in my opinion, that's a really dangerous place to be because God makes himself known with who he is. And when we understand who he is, it makes him more glorious and it makes the struggle so much greater and better. And when we come out on the other side, which sometimes it doesn't feel like we're going to be able to, then we have complete and utter joy in who Christ is. So what is God's role? Question, is he passive or is he active? If he's passive, then he doesn't care. He's sitting in heaven and he's letting us just live life the way that it is. If he is active, then he is intimately involved in our lives. So let's just assume for a second that that's who God is. He is very active. Let's assume that because that's what scriptures say about who God is. Well then, if he's active, how active is he? Is God in control of all things or is he limited in power? You may be thinking, man, these are really elementary questions, Jordan. Yeah, they are in some way, but these are things that we must know as we enter into these times of trials and temptations. He is absolutely in control of all things. Nothing limits his power. Well, if he is all-powerful over life and over death and over physical and over spiritual then the question leads us, is this God good or is he evil? And scriptures proclaim and declare the goodness and the greatness of who God is. And we see it with how he has played out history and led us to the cross of Jesus Christ. So James tells us that God has the inability to actually tempt us. But James does agree with the rest of the Bible that trials are from the Lord. Think about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 when he is with Isaac and he's walking to an altar to sacrifice Isaac. God says in Genesis 22 that this is a test, this is a trial for Abraham. And then we move to Judges, um, Judges chapter 2, verse 22, and we see the nation of Israel establishing themselves in the promised land. And God says that he is leaving the nations around them that aren't Jewish as a trial for them to make sure that they're going to continue to pursue after him. And he was going to lead them faithfully to continue to pursue. But that's not what Israel did. The fine line is that God never seeks to induce sin and destroy faith. That is never God's action plan. It is true that every trial has a temptation. Imagine if 
Abraham, the temptation was so strong to say, I don't want to sacrifice my son Isaac on the cross. And he chose himself over the task that God has given him. And he did not go to the altar to sacrifice his son. It was in that, that moment that God declared it's because of Abraham's righteousness that he, is, um, uh, that he is declared righteous before God. History would have changed if Abraham would not have walked to the test, walked to the trial faithfully. And the same with us, as we walk through our trials, there are temptations that arise, and those temptations are not from the Lord. It was never the point of trials to lead Abraham to fail. It was the point of the trials to lead him actually to succeed. One of my favorite verses I point back to many times is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul is experiencing the thorn in his flesh. And I love seeing the red letter in my Bible pop up as Jesus, the risen Jesus, is talking to um, Paul here. And he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The point of trials is to show us our weakness so that we can lean on, um, lean on the power of God through the gospel to be able to get through the trials and to be able to experience the joy that James paints for us so perfectly. James makes it very clear where these temptations within the midst of trials come from. If you look in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his, what? By his own desires. These trials, these temptations are extremely real. We cannot paint over them and just pretend like they're not as painful as what a lot of us in this room experience. So what do we do with these trials and these temptations? What is the encouragement, rather than just hearing you scream at us about how good God is, how in the world am I supposed to walk through these things? We tend to value family in a strong way, and that is good. But the problem is, is when we replace family with God, or when we place God with family, and our family takes the place of God, and we begin to worship our family. So that way, when someone gets sick, the first place we run to is ourselves. We don't know how to handle the situation because we got to fix it. Family becomes number one. If it's not family, then it's our own health. Many times, and rightfully so, we receive so many prayer request cards for our health because there are so many of us walking through so many difficult things. And we should pray for our health because God draws us to pray for all things and there's nothing small to God. But our health is not our salvation. If God chooses not to heal, God is not less because of it. But he will declare who he is in the midst of our trial and lead us out of temptation to worship him in the midst of these most difficult things that we walk through. 
If it's not family, if it's not our own health, then it's our comfort, it's our finances, it's our security, it's the things we work so hard for that we wrap our arms around and say, this is mine. We would never say that out loud to God, but that's the way we behave. We are so double-minded with the way that we treat our things when God says, it is actually mine that I have loaned to you. And so whenever I take it away, I'm going to give you something to replace it, and it will be greater than the thing that you have. You may not make as much money. You may have to move into a smaller house. You may have to move cities. You may have to dot, dot, dot. But the joy that you have in Christ and pursuing him is so much greater than him actually giving you what you want. How do we handle these situations? Again, verse 16, do not be deceived, my dearly beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow due to change. Leads us to our fourth point. Sorry. Fourth point is sustainable faith has eyes that sees God in all things. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 again. Do not be deceived, my brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What does this mean in light of everything that we've heard up until this point? This means that we must know that every gift comes from God. Here's the reality. Not every gift feels like a gift that you want. We automatically re- read this section in James and we start thinking about all the good things. We should worship Jesus because of all the good things that we have. Yes, but do not end there. We just talked about the trials and we just talked about the temptation and we just talked about us fighting our own sinful nature and desire and experiencing great joy. James wants us to see that these trials and him walking with us through temptation is actually a gift in in itself. And we must stop running away from these things and masking these things that are so uncomfortable and we must run and pursue after Christ now before those times even come because that is where our ultimate joy is found all good gifts the ones we want and the ones we don't come from him and i close with this that the greatest weapon that we have within this journey in this struggle is the one thing that we probably struggle with the most as human beings and that's prayer god has given us a direct line direct access to talk to him And not just talk to him, but when trials come, when we need wisdom, we are drawn to communion with God. We are drawn to be extremely honest with God. God is a big boy. He can take your words when you are frustrated. It is okay to express your frustrations in the moment as long as we are not settled to stay in those frustrations but move beyond where God will walk with us through these difficult things. Prayer is the thing that we need to work on the most and the thing, the biggest advocate we have in the midst of difficult times. Praying, spending time also in God's word as he encourages us through this. As we finish our time together today, I want to invite the worship team on stage, and if you are uh, leading communion, if you could go back and um, get ready for communion, 
It was our desire to do communion as a response to hearing the word of God today. The gospel is so clear that it is all Jesus and it is not us. It is him who provides forgiveness of sins. It is his death and resurrection that gives us life. And it is our chance of uh, responsibility now to be able to um, take communion together as a church family and to be able to reflect on the bread and the juice as we think about our own sin nature and rededicate our lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, that is not something we do at summer camp every summer. That is something that we do day in and day out. We rededicate our lives to the gospel. So I want to invite our ushers forward to um, get into place. And um, as they're bringing the elements forward, Scripture drives us to be able to take the, the, the bread and to take the juice together. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. And as it gets passed out here in a minute, I want um, you to, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, if you're part of this church family or if you're part of another church family, but if you follow Jesus, we would love for you to celebrate Christ in communion. Take uh, a piece of bread and uh, help the, um, the things get down the aisle. That would be really, really helpful. But um, Let's, let's pass the, the bread now, and then we'll, we'll take together, so hold on to it. 